Now, this morning, we have a special guest speaker. Um, and I remember when I asked to serve for a speaker, they were like, are you okay with a female preacher? I'm like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> so Lynn is, um, I've just been reading her bio, and she, she is so incredible and accomplished. Um, and she is a fourth-generation ABC. I, I know many of you here are ABCs as well. I'm also a first-generation ABC. Um, so Lynn was born in Melbourne, raised in Sydney, and worked for more than two decades as a cross-cultural worker with InterServe, with a focus on the peoples of uh, Asia and the Arab. And Lynn now lives in regional Victoria with her family. She's bivocational, serving in medicine, as well as church-based training, peace-building, and mentoring as well. Lynn's family is cross-cultural. Her family, Rich Beck, is British-Australian with their two sons, who are Central Asian Australians. And they love to open their home for meals, board games, and sharing life as well. Lynn likes electronic gadgets, the beach, coffee, movies, chatting with family and friends, and she's currently learning more about contemplation, but is easily distracted. <laughs> so why don't you put your hands together and help me to welcome Reverend Dr. Lynn Pearson. Thank you. Good morning, Let everyone. me pray for you. <laughs> Um, Lord God, we just thank you for Lynn, Lord. We thank you for bringing her here to speak to us, Lord, with her many, many years of wisdom and experience, God. And Father, this morning, would you anoint her lips? Would you anoint uh, the things that she is going to say to us, God? And would you help us, Lord, to listen with our spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and spiritual hearts so that we can um, really take in what you are wanting to say to us this morning? And so, God, we thank you for Lynn, and we just want to lift her up into your hands as she speaks to us now. In Jesus' name. Thank you, and good morning to everyone. And I was really happy to uh, to see an old friend here. So hi, Marlene, shout out to you. Um, I don't mean old as in old, but because uh, I'm getting older. When you talked about the years of experience, because there are many years now, um, you had your prayer and worship, Here I Am, and it was so good to see some slides and to hear a little bit of a report of that, because one of the things that uh, that phrase is from the Bible where the prophet Isaiah seeing his sinfulness and how holy God is he was just tumbled and he said you know who will go and he says here I am <laughs> send me that was his call and often that word call is used and in actual fact in the Bible it's not used that much we are called to follow Jesus, yes. We're called, and as this passage began, and if you do have your Bibles on your phone or in front of you, I'm going to be referring quite a bit to Ephesians 4, so if you can go back to there. But we're called to live up to our calling. That's what the, um, the writer Paul, he's writing from prisons to the church in Ephesus, but maybe it was a circular letter, and maybe it was to a lot of other groups of Christians around there as well. And basically saying, I want you to live authentic lives. I want to, you to be following Jesus with integrity. Being built into the temple of God. That was an image earlier in the uh, book that it's shown as the temple is an unfinished building and the spirit of God is there dwelling and it's still more to come. And that was the, the image that he says in chapter, in chapter 2 and 3. But this is in sync, I think, with your, your statement. I love your vision statement. 
Because there's something about God has done so much, and it's not just to pay back because we can never pay him back. He has done so much that we want to represent Jesus. Can you finish the statement? (laughs) To everyone, to everywhere, with everything. And this first part of the letter that we didn't read, it's an amazing letter, is full of the why. The chapter we just had read out had a lot of do's. Do this, don't do that. I want you to do this. Sometimes when we're told to do things, it's hard going, isn't it? But the beginning of this letter gives us the why. He tells us that we have been brought from death (laughs) to life because of God's grace. That's That's amazing, isn't it? That we are to live a life worthy of the calling. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he begins by saying, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you. That's a pretty strong urging. I urge you, I exhort you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is one of the few times this word calling is used. You know, in my two-plus decades, it's getting closer to three, (laughs) of uh, working in cross-cultural mission, I've never actually heard the voice of God say, Lynn, go there. But in the company and the fellowship of brothers and sisters and knowing and trusting in the sovereignty of God, I know that he is in charge and guiding me. But what he's calling me to is to live this life. I love how you've been working this year from your first quarter of being grounded and being revived, refreshed, because it's foundation. He's saying, I want you to remember I'm urging you to live this life, this calling, worthy, live that worthy life. And he says, this is how you do it. I want you to be humble and gentle, patient and bearing with one another in love. So the key to living a worthy life is a right assessment of ourselves, to attend to our spiritual formation, to our character and humility. It actually is humility of mind there. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he once gave a definition of humility. It's not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less often. (laughs) It's not about a humble brag or a self-deprecation, I'm so bad at that, but actually really having a right assessment. Yes, we are all sinners needing God's grace, but being, and he actually says, completely, completely humble-minded. There was a a study done looking at what are things that make for better outcomes in conflict, And wouldn't that be good if we could have a better way forward in the conflicts that we're in globally? But also, what about bringing it further down to our own situations? And one of the things that makes for good outcomes is intellectual humility. Simply put, it's actually having the insight to say, maybe I had something to do with this conflict. Maybe there's something I have contributed to. It's being able to have a right assessment of yourself. And meekness and gentleness. I mean, sometimes you can say, well, a a good definition of meekness is thinking of an animal, a strong animal like a horse under, under discipline, that you can control it. It chooses to, to be restrained. 
When I think of it, uh, I think about Jake. Um, so one of the things I've done since fifth grade is I play judo. Now, I don't do it as much now because I'm getting older. <laughs> but one of the things that I, uh, I think of is Jake's an Olympian and he's the main coach now at the place where, where I go. But we have a lot of juniors. And uh, when they're on the mat, they love to fight him because they think he's the big guy. Now, he could knock them over with a sweep of his big toe. <laughs> but he restrains himself. That is what meekness is. Jesus, likewise, is called meek and gentle. He has the power to create the heavens and the earth, but he chooses to die on a cross. And likewise, we are told we're to be humble, we're to be gentle, we're to be meek, and we're also to be patient. The word sometimes uses steadfast endurance. It's, um, and it's actually there in the present tense. I want you to be patient. Now. <laughs> now. And it's not just putting up with things and being grumpy about it. Uh, one of my sons is very, I would say, emotionally intelligent. And he can pick it when I'm grumpy. <laughs> He's like, I'm not grumpy. You are. <laughs> it's being patient and forbearing and actually wanting, wanting to love the other person, to be enduring in that. It's a thread that holds it all together is that love, actually. Humble, humble in mind, completely humble, gentle and meek, patient, forbearing with the other in love. These are part of the fruit of the Spirit. You can't make it happen, though. You can't make yourself be humble. It is the fruit of an environment that brings it about. Being in a church family that fosters that. And it sounds like that's what you have here. Being in an environment where there is humility expressed by people because you can see that fruit. Being in a community where forgiveness is given and received. An environment where the Spirit of God is free to move. But it's strange that he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Like, if you've got it, why is he so emphatic about keeping it, maintaining it? It, it seems a bit of a strange thing. Why is he saying... You know, the Spirit gives unity, the Spirit enables this fruit to grow. I want you to be earnest, I'm urging you to do it. And I think part of it is making it visible. You know, it's a reality, but we want it to be real. Everyone can see it. And, you know, that's not a new thing, because in this uh, book he's been building up to, do you know what God's intent was? If you read in chapter 3, 10, his intent really from the beginning, has been that he would demonstrate to the world, to the powers and the principalities, that his church, his church would be on display as his transformation agent. That's mind-blowing. You, your church, my church, the church of God. We sung the Apostles' Creed, and it was a reminder of the things that hold us together around the world. The church is meant to be 
on display to the whole world and the powers and principalities. Why does he so earnestly encourage them to keep this peace? I think part of it is because we're human and there's a propensity for sin. One of my roles, I had a regional role in the international leadership team in InterServe, and very often my role involved mediation, conflict resolution. These are mission workers. These are people committed to Jesus. One of my other roles in Melbourne for the Anglican Church is I work in a thing called the parish support team. What is that? It is to help churches who are in conflict. Why is Paul writing this to the church so many years ago? It's because it's not new. We are human (laughs) and we sin and we're often not humble, we're often not gentle and we're not patient, we're not loving. And so he's urging them to do that. I don't know what your church is like. It seems like it's a loving, healthy family. Only you would know. But even in that context, Paul is saying, I want to urge you to keep it. I want to urge you to enable that to be in your homes, in your workplaces, in your church. But also, as I said, it's a circular letter. So he's also maybe saying, I want you to do that amongst the churches. Um, It's great to hear about your community um, event that's going to be happening later on in the year. To be doing that in the community, that the church should be on display as an agent of transformation and peace. One of my teachers, um, I'm involved with some peace studies, and one of my teachers is a Palestinian theologian. She works at the Nazareth Evangelical College. And uh, her thesis, her doctoral thesis, was actually on church splits in the Arab Baptist churches. And her mandate cries, you know, if we as the church cannot be at peace amongst ourselves, how can we do that in the wider community? We must be on display as representatives of Jesus. We are the demonstration. That's what if you read in chapter 3, the demonstration to the rest of the powers and principalities of this mystery that God has created a new humanity, a new humanity in Christ. You may have heard this this saying. It's a very old one from a a Puritan theologian called Richard Baxter. In the necessary things, let there be unity. In the doubtful things, let there be liberty. In all things, let there be charity. That means in the first order things, the things that are absolutely essential, be willing to die for. But for a lot of things, they're second order. They're not so important. Be gracious. You know, in the Reformation time, um, one of the groups called the Anabaptists, uh, some of their leaders were burned at the stake and drowned because of their views on baptism. Because some people said, that's wrong. (laughs) They need to die for that. We need to be very careful, very cautious of that sort of judgment. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal what are the essential things. And the things that we need to be gracious about and let, let go, agree to differ. But in all things, in all things to be loving. So unity requires a desire for peace. So Paul is saying, I urge you 
He's encouraging them very strongly, seek for peace. And that message of peace, it's not just, uh, it's not just the absence of out-and-out conflict. It's a, it's a shalom peace, an inner peace, a really seeking the good of the other. And that's sort of like not just a negative peace. You've heard of stonewalling. <laughs> that means you could just be quiet, but you're not really, you're not loving the other person. And that can happen in interpersonal relationships, but it happens too in a wider context as well. And why? Because of who God is. Because he is one. We sung it in the creed again. And in this passage we're reminded, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think he wants to make a point. (laughs) There's one God and because of who God is, we don't just get along because it's helpful. We get along, we love the other, we sacrifice because of who God is. And we're united because that is who God is, God who is three in one. And that's why uh, he's very emphatic about saying, because of who God is. And he's everything. He couldn't say all more times than that. He is over all. So a motivation when things get tough or sometimes when there's conflict is because of who God is, because of what he's done. And unity, not uniformity, that's a cratch cry, maybe a cliche, but it means, no, we don't have to be all the same. We don't have to, we don't have to dress the same. We don't have to think the same. But we have to think well of the other. We have to seek the good of the other. So oneness has a reason, a foundation. Oneness also has a purpose. And there in um, verse 7, it talks about the gifts, the gifts that God has given. Gifts are given for a purpose. And the list here in chapter 4 are mostly word-based gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers. But there are other gift lists in the Bible too. And I think you've looked at that through the year as well, um, looking at... uh, the fact that we all have been given gifts. And that's the, the bottom line, basically. Because of Christ, to each one, each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. By the grace of God, we've all been given gifts. And gifts are given for the benefit of others, primarily for the building up of his church. That's what those verses say. The purpose is to become a mature and healthy, functioning body. You know, the hand is very complex. You think about not only just all the bones, all the joints, all the muscles and tendons and ligaments, not even the, all the nerves there, the blood vessels. That's at a macro level. But even at the fact that I could do that, it takes at a microscopic level. It's even beyond the microscope even to know how many sodium ions and Calcium ions, it's a long way back to my physiology days. The fact that I can talk and move at the same time, you know how complex that is? That's the image that we have when we're thinking of a healthy, functioning body. We all have a part. We all have been given a gift. We are all one of those components. 
And that's just the hand. We all have been given gifts, and it is for the purpose of building up the church. A healthy, mature, functioning body, that's what the church is to be. So that they're not like infants tossed around, that's what verse 14 says. They're to be in the truth, they're to live in the truth, verse 15. And that's how we grow mature, in his word, living in the truth, living in love. Working well together. And the temple imagery that was in the earlier chapters, it's little brick by brick, stone by stone, all fitted together. Every component of the body, all working together. There's no place for individualism in the church. Faith that's been given, gifts that are given, they are personal but they're not private. They're for the good of the other. The reality of our discipleship is worked out in community with others. How do we know if we're humble or if we're loving or if we're patient unless it's in the context of other people? So oneness, it has a foundation and it's also got a purpose. If we were to look at um, further on in chapter 4 and verse 14 and 16, it talks about living, living in the love that we've been given. You know, there's a big chunk of the scripture. I don't want you to be like the Gentiles like you were. I want you to be like this. I don't want you to be darkened in your understanding, hard-hearted, given to sensuality. A long list. No coarse joking. I used to have a joke with my um, young brother sometimes and we'd quote um, maybe when we were having words with one another, he'd quote Ephesians 4. <laughs> Building another one up. They're the positive side. So a long list and you can spend time in that in your groups um, maybe during the week. But it's very clear. He said lots of lists of do's but, and don'ts. But he spent so much of the book actually saying the why is because we have been uh, brought into the family of God, adopted into his family. After being totally alien, we are now in his family, adopted with full rights. And he says, so let's go back to why you've got what you've got, why you've been given your, your uh, gifts. Well, in verse 12 and 13, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And that's for the church locally and it's for the church globally, maybe little C and big C church. You know, for 200 plus years, the driving force of mission has been from the West to the rest. In general, that's what it's been. But it's no longer the case. In many ways, we're in a, what's called a post-Christendom era because the epicentre of global Christianity has changed. You know, sometimes we might be disheartened when we think about people's reactions to Christians here. But, man, the church is growing just as Jesus promised he would build his church. 
I, uh, in one of the roles that I have um, in church-based training, I got to meet with the leader of the registered church in Laos. And that was, I think, in July this year. And he was telling me, you know, from the figures we have, um, and see, it's a registered church because it's a communist country. They have to, it's probably an underestimate of what's actually the case. We think there are something like 23,000 people that have come to faith. There's something like 11,000 people that have been baptised. He said, it's a problem, he's saying, because how, how do we disciple? I said, that's a good problem, isn't it? So one of the things that I hear too is that uh, the speed of the growth of the church is like a bullet train, but the speed of the training of leaders is like a bicycle. How do we participate and get involved in that? In the peace studies I'm involved with, um, one of my cohorts from Nigeria, and one of his um, briefs, he works for Campus Crusade there, and he's involved with mission, mission to Sierra Leone and Liberia, sending young professionals to there. In July, uh, in Bangkok, there was a big meeting called Arise Asia. Something like 1,700 young people aged between 20 and 30 gathering. All the, pretty much all the leaders of those workshops and the talks were given by people from Asia. And at the end, they had a call for who wanted to be involved in, in global mission. And hundreds, hundreds went forth. This should give us reason to rejoice at what God is doing. He's keeping to keeping his promise, building his church, getting on with his mission, and he invites us to be part of it. He invites us to be part of what he's doing. The gifts that we've been given are for the equipping of his church locally and globally. The where it is, only you and those around you can discern. Asking God's spirit to work so that it can reveal that to you. So I guess the place, the question is, what is the place for Aussies in this global scene? Um, I think from the Impart video you were showing, it seems like it's to support Indigenous leaders. Is part of the, or the main part of what we involve with, is that, yes, the prayer and the giving? Is it also the going and the sending? Because there's so many opportunities here in Australia, isn't there? God has brought people to our doorstep. I think that the times have never been so uh, uncertain in the migration of peoples and people's, people on the move. So there's lots of opportunities to be involved. I live in Geelong and uh, we have apparently 30 refugee families actually. Not, not just migrants, um, every month. How many to Melbourne itself, I'm not sure. Lots of opportunities. But I think there's a need to do things differently. I said the 200 years, epicentre has changed, 200 years west of the rest, but it's different now, I think. You know, in 219, the church in Turkey, the Protestant church in Turkey, had a, a meeting. They called together uh, 
yes, their church, but all foreign workers there of NGOs and mission organisations. And they said, we need to talk. We need to meet together. We need to pray together. But also, you need to recognise this is our church. <laughs> How can we work together? And to make sure that it's not just um, us, us receiving money and receiving you. Uh, I got the chance to talk to the guy who leads the Istanbul, um, I guess, cluster for that just before uh, August, I think it is, to find out what happened after that meeting. That was 2019. Can you tell me your reflections on has, has anything happened? Because sometimes you can have these big, wonderful meetings and then nothing happens. And he said, well, I think one of the great examples is... Uh, and he gave me two, but this one I'd like to focus on. He said, if you think about the earthquake in 1999, that was very clearly led by foreigners. The, the Protestant church is an above-ground church in Turkey. Yes, there are some issues that make it difficult to minister there, but they actually had T-shirts, Protestant church in Turkey, when they were at the disaster site. But it was very clearly led by foreigners. He said, but you think about the earthquake in 2023, and I know that's out of our news cycle now, but that happened earlier in the year, devastating earthquake. He said that was definitely all led by the local church. He said foreigners uh, were involved and they said, you know, how can we help? What can we do? And basically said, um, well, just wait. We need to get things set up. They have an NGO that is very uh, well-known by the government in responding to uh, disaster. And by that organisation getting in, setting things up, yes, foreigners were able to come and it was easier. But it was very much led by the Turkish church. So I think that reality of the church growing in some parts of the world, sometimes we don't hear about it because of security reasons, but the reality is the church is pretty much in every country. Now it may be fragile, it may be secret, it may be um, under pressure, but God has been growing his church, building his kingdom just like he promised. So I think it calls us to do things differently. And I want to think about a different paradigm, the come paradigm. If you think back to Acts chapter 16, Remember Paul, on his missionary journey, was setting off in one direction, but then he had a sleep and he had a dream. In uh, 16, 9 to 10, they spent the night in Troas. Finally, their direction comes. During the night, Paul had a vision, a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is a very much the Macedonian call saying, come, come and help. And you know, so many opportunities today where the church is saying, come and help us, come and work with us, come and partner with us. And I think that should be a difference in our posture and how we engage in mission. One writer I uh, read uh, said, Yes, there is a place for, for the West to be involved. Um, but how should they come? And it, he said it's a shift in posture. He said maybe it should be from actor 
to facilitator, uh, a family head to a guest, from a hero to an enabler, to a friend, mainly a friend. It reflects a shift in posture. When recruiters ask what sort of person should, uh, should be on our list, one of the things is deeply enjoying making others successful. Not wanting the limelight for themselves, but actually being willing to take the back seat and cheer others on. Being humble-minded. Do you know, one of the greatest witnesses in various contexts is the church working together, multi-ethnic teams who actually get on, who love one another, This same writer that said, you know, it is a shift in posture, but so often it is very much when I talk to national church leaders um, and say, how can we work with you? How can we help you? He said, they often look at me with a puzzled look saying, I know you're asking me, but you're already making plans to do your own thing. (laughs) So many people thinking, God has called me to plant a church in such and such a place not knowing actually there is a church there or nearby, maybe we could work together. So just in wrapping up a bit, so are you called? God's saying, will you go? Go into all the world? Well, the thing we're called to is to live a life worthy of the gospel. But the needs, the invitations, the opportunities are ever-present. Someone asked me, so why why wouldn't you go? And I have to think that that's probably the most important question. When you think about the proportion of where Christian workers work, do you know that a quarter of the world population wouldn't even stumble across a Christian let alone find a church, because there's just the proportion are not there. Less than, is it 3% of giving goes to serving those places that are so uh, gospel poor. So just proportionally, the question is, so would you go? Well, why wouldn't you go? Have you got good reasons? Maybe it's not a, look, these are the reasons I I have to stay. But let's, let's be open. Can we be open to say, what is it, God? How can I represent Christ to everyone, everywhere, with everything? Is it here in Clayton? Or is it that I give? And pray. They're not second best if you do that to either. You know, one of the um, guys that I met on an interview very early on, I went as a a medical student to Pakistan. And the very first time I I went, he said, you know, Lynn, to get an aeroplane up off the ground, it takes so many people. Yeah, there's a couple of pilots, maybe there's some of the crew. But you think about all the engineers and the flight traffic people, To get the aeroplane up and back safely, it takes a lot of people. One is not lesser than the other. A nerve in my P-51 
pinky is not as as not unimportant compared to my thumb. They're all important. We want a body that's well, it's healthy and functioning together. And it's because of who God is. He's given us gifts and by his grace, he's given us the reason for it. It's for the building up of his church, locally and globally. And so this come that is being offered by the church globally you could have a mission agency. Yes, I'm from the mission agency, InterServe. But forget about those. But the church globally is saying, there are so many needs. Will you come and help us? Will you come and work with us? Will you come and serve with us? You know, in 1998, I set off to go to Central Asia. And I got an opportunity to have a special time with my mum. My mum's now passed. But I had a very special relationship uh, with her. And with all the goings and comings and goodbyes, it was too difficult to say goodbye to her. So we spent, I think it was a week in Thailand. And in the airport in Bangkok, I said goodbye to her. And I remember having a crisis of faith. I'd prepared for so many years. So many years, thinking, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> and I thought, oh, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, you believe that, Lynn. <laughs> Why do you believe that? Well, this historical evidence in the Bible, but also because I know he lives in me. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is Lord of all. He gave himself for us. He is worth everything. Let's pray. Lord, we want to follow you because you love us, because you gave yourself for us. You are worthy. You are worth it, everything. Our Lord and God, grant us your spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious grace the inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. We thank you that you are risen. You are risen indeed. Lord, we pray that we would make the most of every opportunity, that we would live lives that are worthy of our calling. And we ask this in your mighty name for our good and for your glory. Amen.